This morning's reading is a poem by Morgan Harper Nichols. This is a poem about change. Ross shared this with me back in March when we were reeling from the news and subsequently we shared it. You'll find it posted in my office. Um, And it is a poem not just for this moment, but for our whole lives. When it feels like everything is changing all at once, remember this. Here in this life, you will feel many things. You will laugh and you will let go. You will gather stories and you will grieve. You will be interrupted by light. You will find gold in little things. You will have questions that lead to answers, and you will have questions you sit with for years. You will long for days to come, and you will learn to find joy right here. You will watch old things drift away, and you will see new things take shape. You will look back on old years in awe of all the ways you've changed. And over and over, things will change. And you might feel a little afraid. And you will also find there is grace and there is space to take this day by day. Take heart here in the change. You'll still bloom day by day, even when it doesn't seem that way. Everything will change, and you will change too, exactly in the way you were always meant to. The word of Morgan Harper Nichols for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray together. Sovereign God, we give thanks for the majestic creation that you called good, and we open our hearts and minds to be creators of your peace with justice. Remind us of the responsibility with which you entrusted us to care for the work of your hands. Move us to repair what is broken in your world and to plant holy seeds so that your garden will flourish once again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today uh, is Justice with Peace Sunday in the United Methodist Church. And one time, you know, kind of, we're Methodists, so we focus on justice with peace all the time. But there's one time every year where we focus specifically on it in our text and in our preaching and since I'm not really preaching a sermon this morning, I, didn't, I don't have it within me to preach today. I'm just going to tell you right now, like that would have been a, a, a dumpster fire of a sermon if I tried to preach today. So instead, we're doing the thing that Stuart dubbed Rapping with Ross, where you wrote questions on index cards, and I do my best to give you my 
opinions that I, some people might call answers. I don't call them answers because nobody has like full answers to, you know, theological things. It's just a bunch of opinions. And so I'll give you my opinions to some of those questions. But before we do that, I did want to read a text to you as I started thinking about what's the last biblical text that I want to read to Morningstar as the preacher at the church. Um, I thought about the story of Jacob having his name changed. Um, I thought about talking about Zacchaeus being called out of the tree and Jesus saying, let's go to the place that you're comfortable instead of you coming to the place that I'm comfortable. I thought about talking about Thomas because, oh my gosh, I, I love the story of Thomas. I do not think he's a doubter of God. I think he's a doubter of his friends and not trusting that they hadn't eaten some moldy bread or something, you know, like I think that the idea that we can ask questions and that God can handle our questions is represented best in Thomas. And um, if I could name a church anything, it would be St. Thomas United Methodist Church, like Thomas the, the, the questioner, not the doubter. But ultimately, I think the, the, the text that is most meaningful to me that shapes my theology the most is the, the, the uh, creation narratives in the book of Genesis. There are two of them, by the way. One of them is kind of uh, orderly, and the other one is poetic. And what that tells me is that we don't have to read the Bible literally. Like, the Bible is not a history book. It's a book of truths, and truth is different than accuracy, right? So we don't know exactly how creation happened. And I don't know that that's the right question to be asking anyway. Maybe the right question is, why did creation happen? Why are we here? What is our purpose? What's the whole goal of this project of God's that includes us? And so um, listen to this beautiful, beautiful ending of the first creation story in Genesis. I'm going to start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And we're going to go slightly into chapter 2. God saw everything that God had made. God saw everything that God had made. And it was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The heavens and the earth and all who live in them were completed. On the sixth day, God completed all the work that he had done. And on the seventh day, God rested From all the work he had done, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The idea that all things that we can see and touch, all things that breathe and have life and move about, and all things that reflect back to us the glory of God are supremely good, shapes the way that on Justice and Peace Sunday, we ought to help ourselves think about the world because in a world that gets so easily divided, I think it's important for us to remember that each and every one of us and each and every one of everyone everywhere is supremely good in God's eyes. And if we can walk through the world with that understanding and remembering that, I think just our remembering of that will make the world a more loving and kind and just place. Amen. That's my last sermon.
Um, not ever, but for today. So uh, four years ago, when I got appointed here, uh, I preached for a while, and then I got to this place where I was like, one of the things I want people to know is that uh, pastors like questions, and United Methodist pastors like hard questions, and we don't care about the answers. We, we like really good questions, and there's no question that's off the table. There's nothing you should be afraid of asking, and so I told Stuart, I was like, hey, let's hand out a bunch of index cards and tell people to write their questions down anything they've ever wanted to ask a pastor and hand them back in. And then in a couple of weeks, I'll try to answer those questions. And we got a handful of cards and they were really easy questions to answer to begin with. And then we started getting more cards of relatively easy questions. And then we started getting less cards with really difficult questions. Like I got this question one time, the last time I did this, I had to do some real research. And thankfully the person who wrote the question gave me some places to go on disassociative identity disorder which was my favorite question I've ever answered up here, Becca. That was, like, it blows my mind to think about the Bible in that context. Just, I got sermons about that all of a sudden in my head. So thank you for that. And so today, um, I don't have a lot of time. We had some baptisms, which I would never, if it was just a whole morning of nothing but baptisms, that would be perfect. And the water was cold, and... And I think it's amazing because I think the Holy Spirit is shocking. Like when we encounter the Holy Spirit, when I encounter the Holy Spirit, it's almost always a shocking experience to me. And so that water being cold is a reminder of this is a shocking thing. If it were warm, there would have been more water. I would have wanted to shock you with the amount. So So I'm just going to go through the easy questions first. And then I'm going to get to the harder ones. And I may let you like hold up one finger or two fingers and do a quick vote on some of these so that we can get to some of them. The first one says, Dear Ross, what is your favorite woman in the Bible? And what is her story? And why is she special to you? Well, there are lots and lots of women in the Bible that I think are... There's a Spanish word I want to use right now uh, for like... uh, I can't even say it in English, but like a woman who's like really bad. You know what I mean? Like bad in a good way. And there are several women in the Bible that are just kind of mind blowing the the courage that they had and their willingness to put themselves forward. But the first story, the first book of the Bible that I ever read to either one of my daughters was the book of Esther. Because I think there are two women in that story that blow me away. But Esther is the only that I can recall anyway, the only messiah figure in the bible that is female so when people say like god doesn't use women to lead they should go read the book of esther now there are several messiah figures in the bible right there's david and there's samson and there are some others but there's also esther and a messiah is somebody who saves the people and then jesus comes along and saves all the people like he's the real messiah these others are messiah figures so there's a distinction there. Don't, don't, don't call my bishop and say, Ross said that the, the Messiah is Esther. That is not what I'm saying. She's Messiah-like, like she saved the people. So here's her story. Uh, she was born incredibly beautiful, the Bible tells us. Um, her predecessor, so to speak, the, the, the wife that was kind of cast aside, was cast aside because her husband, the king, 
was like, hey, I'm having this big party and me and all my buddies are drunk. Why don't you come out here and show your body off to me and all my friends so that they can see? And she was like, oh, that's not happening. Not a chance. That Will I let you objectify me in that manner? And so he goes and finds a new wife, Esther. Esther doesn't get asked to do that. But what ends up happening is that Esther's people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, this king is tricked into going, he's going to commit genocide and have all of them slaughtered. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, comes to her and they're speaking through the gates and he says, Esther, you've got to, you've got to go talk to the king. And she's like, if I, I can't go into his court without being invited in. If I go in without being invited in, I'm going to be killed. Do you understand the danger, the thing that you're asking me to do? And Mordecai is like, Esther, listen, you, it, it's possible that you were born for this. And in that moment, she has a shocking experience. And she finds the courage, the Holy Spirit, God gives her the courage to go into the court of the king without being invited in. And she says, you got to stop what you're doing, man. The thing that you're planning shows your foolishness by listening to foolish advisors, and you've got to stop, and he stops. And I just think it's a powerful story for all of us to learn from, because she is, well, you know what I want to say. So that's that answer. I would say Esther. There are lots of women I like. I could have talked about a lot of them, but uh, because... That's where I started teaching about women in the Bible to my kids. That's where I feel like I got to go. So the second one, uh, I know this, this one was written by my mom. Uh, so I, I got to answer it, right? Um, she said, why do you often wear work boots on Sunday? So she's setting me up. She wants me to tell you this story. Um, every male figure in my life that I looked up to when I was a kid wore boots to work. They wore work boots. They were cotton ginners, they worked in cotton compresses, they worked in the potash mines, they all wore work boots. And my paternal grandfather only ever heard me preach one time that I know of, and what I remember him saying is, well, two times. The first time he said, you did pretty good. Uh, he, he didn't say a lot of words, so you did pretty good was like, that was awesome. And then the second time he heard me preach, he said, what I liked is I could understand what you were saying. And so when I put my work boots on in the morning when I come to work, there are two reasons why. One is I want to remember those guys. And I want to remember that they, they still exist. They're, they're in this room like a lot of you guys wear work boots. That's the kind of work you do. And also I want to remember that like a lot of preachers use a lot of big words and don't explain what they mean and just leave people behind. And I don't want to do that. So I'm remembering a lot of things. But the other thing I want to say about that is that a lot of people wear the clothes that they wear, especially in ministry, as a ministry. For example, when I uh, lived in Abilene, Texas, the first church that I worked at there, when I would go to work in the mornings, I had to wear dress pants or at least slacks and a button-up shirt and a belt and dress shoes and that sort of stuff. Well, the school that we chose to send my kids to was a low-income school, lots of diversity, lots of economic diversity. We, we like those kinds of schools for our kids because that's the real world, and we want them to get educated in the real world. But I would leave uh, St. Paul United Methodist Church to go to the school to pick a lease up, 
Okay. And I would stand in the schoolyard trying to create conversations and get to know people, and people wouldn't talk to me. And so one day, I stopped by the house, and I put on like just a ratty pair of shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops, and everybody talked to me. Sometimes the clothes we wear are a barrier to people who are outside of the church. And so for me, it's important that I, I dress in a way that other people will be like, okay, that person's approachable. Um, it's not about putting on a show. I'm not excited about having to wear a robe every Sunday for the rest of my life in Albuquerque. Um, because sometimes I feel like those things are a barrier to people approaching. Um, but it's about ministry. And for me, it's about reminding myself of who I am and where I came from as well. The next question, does it matter if a person gets cremated or buried? No. Because some, name somebody who died like four or five hundred years ago. Martin Luther died like four or five hundred years ago. Do you think his body looks anything like ours right now? It's dirt. It's dirt. It's ashes. From ashes you have come to ashes you shall return. Have you ever seen cremains? They're dirt. They're ashes. From ashes you have come to ashes you shall return. We remember that every Good Friday. So eventually, whether it happens within... I don't know how long it takes for somebody's body to be cremated. Whether it happens in that amount of time or it happens over decades, you will be dirt. And we also are people who believe in the resurrection. So whatever that looks like, at some point, we will come back together. John Wesley says that we'll come back together in the form that matches a spiritual need more than a physical need. So... If you're a person who has a family member who has been cremated and you're like, what did we do to them? You just sped the process up. And if you have a family member who's like, you should not be cremated, it's just kind of logic. You know, like, we're going to turn into dirt. Sometimes the Bible is so logical that we miss it. Okay. Thanks, Wendy. Wendy's letting me know. Keep, keep going, keep going. Okay. Mark, I got your question here. So my friend Mark Stuvey, our friend Mark Stuvey, wrote this. Lutherans and Methodists are similar. So if you don't know, Mark Stuvey used to be a Lutheran. He feels like maybe he's screwed up and now he's a Methodist. No, not really. <laughs> So he was a Lutheran, and this is a really interesting question. Lutheran and Methodists are similar. So similar, in fact, that the ELCA and the United Methodist Church are in full communion together. That means that if Jared Carson at Peace Lutheran and I decided to do a pulpit exchange one Sunday, we could literally serve communion in one another's churches without breaking any church rules. We are in full communion. We're not the same denomination. There are some very distinct differences but we're so similar that we're basically, you know, like, I don't know, close. But what is one of the marked differences between John Wesley and Martin Luther? So they lived about 200 years apart from one another. And when John Wesley was writing arguments against Martin Luther, those are the best kind of arguments to write when somebody is dead and they cannot argue back. (laughs) 
And so Martin Luther was dead and buried for like 200 years. Maybe he was already dirt. I don't know how long that process takes. Doesn't take that long, I don't think. And, Mar and John Wesley was arguing. And here's the main difference, Mark. Like the part where John Wesley is like, okay, I see you, Martin Luther, but I'm going to go this way, was around the idea of what we in the United Methodist Church call Christian perfection. John Wesley believes that, but, that by the grace of God and solely and entirely, 100% by the grace of God, there is nothing we can literally do to get there, but that by the grace of God, we can move on to what is called Christian perfection. So on the day that I was ordained, I stood and looked at a room full of Methodist elders and deacons who were fully ordained, and Bishop Earl Bledsoe said, Ross, are you moving on to Christian perfection? And if I had said, no, I don't believe that's possible, done. I would not be ordained. So the correct answer is, yes, I am moving on to Christian perfection. So I answered some more questions and got ordained. Um, but I didn't answer those questions without meaning them. I 100% believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God can and will move us on to being able to love God and love one another perfectly. And it happens more and more and more as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into our faith. I need to explain something, though. I think we have a more Lutheran understanding of perfection than we have a Wesleyan understanding of perfection. So John Wesley didn't mean without flaw. John Wesley meant with 100% perfect intent. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. I'll try to do it quickly. Imagine there's a little kid. And this little kid is watching their parents do some yard work. And one of the parents is mowing a yard, and the other parent is working in the garden and this kid is over helping the parent work in the garden and they're spreading manure around and adding fertilizer and watering it and the kid loves it because their hands are filthy dirty. And then the kid decides they want to go help the parent who's working on the lawnmower and so they go over and that parent's like, hey, can you hand me a Phillips screwdriver? And the kid reaches into the bag and hands them a crescent wrench. Can you, no, no, that's not it. Can you, it's that one over there and the kid reaches and hands them something else. It doesn't matter, but not a Phillips screwdriver. The kid starts getting really frustrated because all this kid wants to do is help the parent. And so the parent says, hey, can you go into the house? What you can really do that would be helpful, I'm super thirsty and it's hot. Could you go into the house, get the biggest cup you can, fill it full of ice and water and bring it to me? So the kid's little, like I'm imagining like Owen or Laney, right? Like they go into the house, they grab a chair, they drag it across the kitchen, they step up on it, they open the freezer, they reach in, and they start getting ice, filling up the cup, filthy hands. <laughs> they drag the chair, they bring it back over to the sink, they stand up, and they turn the faucet on, and they fill the thing up, but because it's heavy, they've got one hand over it and one hand on top, and their nasty little fingernails are in the water. And they take that glass out, to the parent and say, here you go. And the parent grabs it, takes a giant drink, notices all the floaties in it, takes a giant drink and says, that was perfect. There will be a day in your life when you 
by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, are perfect. You will love one another and you will love God with perfection. But that doesn't mean without flaw. That's the biggest difference, Mark. That's where John Wesley parted ways with Martin Luther was around that idea. Some would think it's around the idea of predestination. That's not it. John Wesley was not about predestination. That's the next question. It was like some, some churches believe in predestination. Methodists don't. What's the deal with that? The deal with that is this. You can make an argument using the Bible this, that we are called and predestined by God for salvation. John Wesley would say, like, okay, that may be, but, but if, if you're predestined, then you can't reject it. Like, that's one of the tenets. So, in the, in the theologies that believe in predestination, they are systematic. Like, it's a whole belief system. Point A leads logically to point B, which leads logically to point C. John Wesley was a terrible systematic theologian. The system, if you try to put together the system of belief for him... It's like having a conversation with Stuart. Like, eventually you get it, you know? <laughs> but it's about the lived experience. So Wesley was an Arminian. That's another church term that, about a person, Jacob Arminius. But he was an Arminian, and Jake, Jacob Arminius believed through lived experience that I can choose to reject God. Now, the folks who believe in predestination would say, if you can choose to reject God, you were never saved in the first place. But you can, in the Bible, make a good argument for both. I, I don't, like, I don't, I don't want to get caught up in all of those arguments. I think sometimes when we get caught in those arguments, we miss the forest for the trees, which is God's grace is what saves us. And the nuanced differences. Whatever it is that you feel your heart being drawn to, you should go with that. Find a church that, that fits that nuanced difference of belief for you because it's in those times that you will experience the grace of God in the largest way. So if you're a person who believes, yeah, God chose certain people, therefore certain people aren't chosen, then, then go for it. But if you're a person like me, I made an intentional decision to say, my lived experience, my practical theology is that I can sense myself making choice in this. Wesley's thing was like, listen, if people are chosen, then what's the point of preaching? And my friends who believe in like Reformed theology would say, well, okay, if Stuart is chosen, he doesn't know he's chosen. So you have to preach so that he will have this moment of like, oh, I'm chosen. I don't know. That's why all theology is opinion. Because we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? How'd I do? Yeah, this isn't a seminary class. I don't have time to write a term paper, Pastor. I know, I know. That's why I asked. That's why I asked. I didn't, I didn't do an injustice, right? Okay, all right. We have a Presbyterian pastor in the house. That's why I was like, all right, here we go. This will be fun. And I did choose to be here. Good. <laughs> so, interestingly enough, my favorite professor at, in seminary, a, a Wesleyan seminary, was a Calvinist. He's a Presbyterian Calvinist. 
He believes in predestination. He said, listen, you don't get to choose what train you're on. You just get to choose what car you're riding in. And sure, like you think that you have all the choice, like you think you can choose to go to the restroom or go to the bar or go to the dinner car or whatever. Sure, you have all that choice, but the train is chosen for you. But he also had this really beautiful uh, way of talking that almost convinced me to become a, a Lutheran, at least, was <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, when you're walking down the street, this, this is a lived experience, right? Like, I think we all have had something like this happen. You're walking down the street, and you, like, something catches your eye, a flower, a leaf blowing in the wind, a child playing in a backyard, something happens that reminds you of God's grace. He said, those moments are chosen for you. And when you recognize them, that lets you know, like, you're in the chosen space. And I was like, or you could choose to see that, right? Like, it's just, it's a, I think it's a lot of perspective there. All right. Um, would you rather hear me, how much time do we have left? I got to wrap it up? Okay. Good, because I didn't want to talk about those questions anyway. <laughs> Not really. They were good ones. One was about uh, the future of the United Methodist Church and what I think might be happening there. And the other was my opinion about the conflict between Israel and Palestine. My email, if you want to know my thoughts, is Stuart at mstarlc.church. <laughs> we can have a long conversation about that. Because it's Peace with Justice Sunday, uh, as we say this creed together, this is what we call our social creed in the United Methodist Church. And most Methodist churches ought to be saying the social creed at least one time a year, if not more. This is um, a reminder to us <clears throat> this is a reminder to us of who we are what we believe, and how we want to interact with the world around us. So Morningstar, United Methodist Church, and friends. What is it that you believe? We believe in God, creator of the world, and in Jesus Christ, the redeemer of creation. We believe in the Holy Spirit, through whom we acknowledge God's gifts, and we repent of our sin in misusing these gifts to idolatrous ends. We affirm the natural world as God's handiwork and dedicate ourselves to its preservation, enhancement, and faithful use by humankind. We joyfully receive for ourselves and others the blessings of community, sexuality, marriage, and the family. We commit ourselves to the rights of men, women, children, youth, young adults, the aging, and people with disabilities, to improve of the quality of life and to the rights and dignity of all persons. We believe in the right and duty of persons to work for the glory of God and the good of themselves and others, and in the protection of their welfare in so doing, in the rights to property as a trust from God, collective bargaining, and responsible consumption, 
and in the elimination of economic and social distress. We dedicate ourselves to peace throughout the world, to the rule of justice and law among nations, and to individual freedom for all people of the world. We believe in the present and final triumph of God's word in human affairs and gladly accept our commission to manifest the life of the gospel in the world. Amen. I would encourage you all to take some time and just Google the United Methodist Social Creed and reread that because it's a lot of language and a lot of ideas that are hard to take in upon first reading. And so I would encourage you to take some time to look at that because it's been worked out over a long period of time about this is how we want to live in the world as United Methodists.